it's the Dice of Screaming coming at you free and without charge. <laughs> and without rain or let either. Yeah. With neither lease nor writ. Yes. <laughs> Unleashed upon the podcast wilderness of the Anchor Universe. We are the off-brand cereal. Ah, the, the mangy raccoon of gaming podcasts. Mm-hmm. The Dice Are Screaming. I'm Randy. That's us. And I'm Mike. And together we form the Dice Are Screaming podcast. So, hope you'll join us for a rousing, rousing round of topics and shenanigans all around. Uh, coming up on the weekend, and we're here in the frozen wastes of southwest lower Michigan. Ugh. Yeah, frozen wastes is actually a pretty accurate term, since it's uh, somewhere around you know 7 or 8 degrees outside right now. Uh, and admittedly, we're not under a pile of snow like the poor denizens of Ohio and yeah. other parts, and we're certainly not staring down the barrel of, uh, uh, what, what was it they were predicting for next week with wind chill in, like, Minnesota, like negative 50 or something? Yeah. Yeah, so it clearly isn't that bad. We, we both, uh, <laughs> I'm here in my headquarters, and, uh, Randy managed to, uh, coax the sled dogs into action and... Across the tundra to my house. Yeah, so, I, uh, my tauntaun might not survive to the first marker, but uh, <laughs> I made it here. <laughs> well, as long as you, as long as I don't have to send out a scout to uh, see if I gotta shove you in one of that those tauntauns to keep no, you alive. No. I thought it smelled bad on no. the outside. Ugh. Uh, no, it, that having been said. Oh, welcome back to the show. Yeah, we had a pretty good live cast at uh, Perfect Storm. Uh, it's still uh, a little hard to get the link. Uh, still trying to put that up on our uh, page, but uh, just finally got a hold of it today. But uh, not feeling the best myself, just a little down under the weather. But uh, back in fit, fine and fit fettle, I shall be soon enough. So with that, uh, we have a topic tonight, and yeah, we were going to talk about caves, but... We don't want to talk about no, that. No, I, I was actually, uh, I strongly suggested that we do an entire episode dedicated to filthy, repugnant sewers. But we don't want to do a show about politics. So, no, no. So we stuck with clean materials, family-friendly. Yes, art in gaming. Yeah. Now, it's, you know, the title is The Art of Gaming, and uh, of course, you would think that, of course, art of gaming, but it is an art, but what we're going to talk about tonight is the specifics of art, how it's influenced our gaming, uh, it's definitely colored our mental landscape with its effects. I mean, we started off, what, in the 70s? Yeah. And uh, with D&D, and uh, with that, you know, uh, with the black light Led Zeppelin posters <laughs> hung up in the room, were also Frazetta posters. Uh, typical of that era, yes. Uh, if you didn't have a, a uh, black light glowing Led Zeppelin poster, you weren't one of the cool kids. <laughs> um, but ever-present, even outside of gaming, was the art of gaming, the, the actual uh, visual creations of a multitude of artists, and even though in many cases the individuals who purchased these posters were not big fans of gaming per se, this material was ever-present. It was, it was everywhere you turned, 
and it was widely regarded as cool at the time. So gaming art had already, like long before the game itself, when the game was just a thing that like, oh, those nerds play that. Yeah. But you could go to somebody's house, and even if they had never seen a D&D book, there was a fair shot that they'd seen a Frazetta uh, poster somewhere to be found. Yeah, you know, the Death Dealer one, um, Conan uh, fighting the Frost Giants, and uh, what was the other big one? No, uh, the Bear Chariot. Oh, my. The epic Bear Chariot. I mean, that and just shows you, you know, say what you want about Frazetta and his love of the female derriere, but in a poster, because no man crafted so lovingly the full some buttocks of a woman <laughs> like Frank Frazetta. But he yes. also put <laughs> in there a lot of... A lot of very adolescent, typical moments over the occasional piece of Rosetta art. But a, a, a hard dude with a sword being pulled along on a sl- war sled pulled by polar bears. Yeah. And just epitome of cool. Yeah, you just can't get any better. <laughs> um, you may be cool, but you're not Frank Rosetta's character being pulled on a sled by polar bears cool. Yeah, you will never be... at This, it was... Well before the age of my shark has lasers, uh, this particular era brought a lot of art into mainstream, and there was a limited market at that time for people who could prepare art for the cover of what was going to be a fantasy book. Uh, not that much of a marketplace, but as D and D became more popular and. I hesitate to use the actual word popular. I, I should say less hideously unpopular, you know, as it, as it became more entrenched as a pastime in certain circles. Along with it came the art of D&D, the, the art of fantasy, and it started to have more places. And, it, hey, sooner or later, it's not just on the cover of a few books. It's all over the place. Yeah, and, you know, starting out, as we always do, uh, the original box set, white box set, had uh, some quaint, and I'm not being mean by saying that, but no. had some nice little black and white illustrations. And while it was, you know, bare, or even Spartan, it was there. Art was present. Um, it just wasn't uh, a bunch of blank text. You know, they spiced it up with a little illustration here and there every few pages. Yeah. But uh, it soon became apparent that they would need more. And so uh, we remember the Monster Manual collage. Uh, that was uh, oh David my. Sutherland. Yes. Doing that whole painting of all the monsters. Kind of like a mural. Yeah, it really was. And it was meant to highlight as many of the like mythic standards that people were, you know, a mixture of what people would be familiar with and yet a few things that would be intriguing. Yeah. And also, uh, the Player's Handbook with David Trampier. Ah, yes. On the idol, prying the gems out of the idol and cleaning the bodies from the floor. Exactly. Uh, One of those great moments of artwork for D&D, the the thing that stuck with a lot of people many, many years after their first encounter with uh, an AD&D text, was that impression of, like, the the post-battle, okay, that... Player's Handbook cover, post-battle, there they are, you know, (laughs) the rogues have climbed up the idol and are prying loose the big gem eye, uh, 
spiders are dragging the corpses of what looks like lizard men off to a you pile them up like kindling. Yep, and they're you know divvying up the loot and looking for the next place to hit. So, yeah, you know it was quintessential of the dungeon masters. It had a wonderful air of, of what like, the dungeon master would kind of view of what the players see a lot. You know, like you were peeking in, and anyway. Then you had the Dungeon Master's Guide with uh, David Sutherland, the City of Brass, that giant Afriti, the Sultan of the Afrit. Ah, yes, on the back, the, the Sultan of the Afriti, and you know, like the City of Brass in the background. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, there in a lake of fire. Uh, just everything was this trippy, gorgeous landscape. Uh, and it made an immediate impression. Even if you if you didn't know what an Efriti was, uh, then you know it might have looked hideously demonic in origin. Yes, know, it's a huge monster with a sword. Uh, its context wasn't plain to all to see, but you know you could see it. And then throughout those books, there were uh, gorgeous little illustrations with Trampier and uh, uh, Sutherland and other artists at the time. But TSR quickly branched out. I mean, Dragon Magazine started I, having gorgeous covers. I, I gotta say, uh, it's 30 years plus on now. I mean, you know, really going on about 40 since I, I first encountered that book. And uh, that little doodle of the fighter jumping into the magic user's arms uh, <laughs> in in fear because there's a rust monster nearby still cracks me up. I, it's multiple decades on, and I still look at that and go, <laughs> or the, I don't uh, them a bit. The fighter and the wizard wearing Mickey Mouse ears and little uh, rat noses going into the temple of the rat men. <laughs> this better work. <laughs> oh man, more than one charisma check will be needed for this one. Yeah. But yeah, humor, gaming, and all that. We could do a whole topic on that, but we're just going to focus yeah, on the we're, artwork. We're, we're focusing on the artwork this time. But humor to, is a thing for a, well, I mean. Humor is a thing for a podcast with two people who have a sense of it, yeah, uh, as opposed right. to us. Uh, you know. <laughs> but, all right, so, you know, um, there was Era Otis, who uh, is legendary for many yeah. of his covers. There is a name that, you know, lives on in memory. That Era Otis did some of the most unique D&D-related art uh, to hit any of the modules. Uh, yeah. Uh, particular to that, there were a number of little homages to him uh, inside. What was it, uh, Queen of the Demon Web Pits, or was it Vault of the Drow, where there was uh, some piece of art that was done by Earl Oots, Earl Oots, Oots, or something like yes. that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just... some weird, tripped-out Drow painter. Yeah, and. Using had, psychedelic mushrooms to achieve vistas of other planes and realities. How old was he at the time that he first yeah, started he would, working I, for them? I heard like he actually was in high school, just like in his uh, sophomore freshman days when he first started working, and uh, just started you know, yeah, cranking just, out black and white illustrations and you know started doing color. But his use of color, his weird nature of making these. Fantastic monsters and you know, horrifying scenes. That was his oeuvre, man. And he carved himself out a niche that still resonates with many of us today. Yeah, to this day, a lot of us remember Aerolotus uh, for <laughs> some of the most unique creations there. And 
it may have seemed a little amateurish to some by comparison to the really slick, polished, uh, you know, novel cover quality material done by some artists. But you've got to give a nod to the fact that gaming being a new thing at that time, it had the door open for a lot of new artists. Uh, just people grabbed a hold of an opportunity, took it, and ran with it, and they did amazing stuff. Yeah, Dragon Magazine, every month was a lavish illustration of the cover. I mean, they chose great artwork, and there's a number that we could gush about, but the ones that would be classic would be uh, Larry Elmore. Yeah, Mr. Elmore uh, created... A lot of the iconic that night fighting magazine. the orcs on a rearing steed coming up on them, you know, in a forlorn wooded hillland, and uh, you know his dragons. Man, that guy could draw dragons like no other. Um, Magnificent, incredible detail, uh, right down to. Well, wait a minute, didn't I? Didn't I commission a tiny illustration from Elmore way back in the day at one of the cons? Oh, I'm not sure. I, I can't remember if it was him or not, but uh, one of the, the great artists that did Dragon Magazine covers was doing uh, quick illustrations, and I, I had a mage that I was playing at the time, and I still have that picture. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, uh, we should I have to dig it out. and. Yeah, we'll find know, out more on that. That's dig it out and frame it. So, yeah, it's a trophy of ancient gamedom. Um, Clyde Caldwell. Uh, oh yes. Uh, basically, the Voris Vallejo definitely liked uh, the female form, but also, man, that cat could really uh, put in a sense of age and antiquity in his pictures. I mean, when his drawings and his illustrations, as well as his paintings, he really got the old kind of. It was an age undreamt of kind of yeah. mystic aura. and weathered and worn. Uh, you know, things that had had a life before they were illustrated. Yeah, he was real good. And uh, Keith Parkinson. Oh. See, I'm glad you brought that up because he did a lot of uh, uh, the Dragon Magazine cover art too, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he was. They were all featured. They became uh, stable artists for TSR for quite a while. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the last one is uh, Jeff Easley, who would redo the Monster Manual Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide, you know, the one with the uh, Red Dragon fighting the Pegasi on the Monster Manual and the uh, wizard being assailed by some kind of imps in the Player's Handbook and, you know, the classic <laughs> green-robed fellow opening the doors, the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yes, that was... Uh second generation of uh, first edition, the, the re-released, you know, after the first print runs of the original DM Guide the Player's Handbook had, had run their course, uh, the later covers. Uh, still very handsome artwork and very appropriate. Uh, not as iconic as the originals, perhaps. Uh, and I, I still knock them for not having achieved the same amazing... Uh, binding quality that they did with the first edition. Oh yeah, but hey, leaving that aside, it was still it was these were very attractive covers. Yeah, and there's a little add-on. Uh, Boris Vallejo did do a couple uh, covers for Dragon Magazine. See, I had forgotten that. I, I, I yeah, he only did like two, but oh. uh, he came there, did some artwork for him, and you know, typical thing. Um, there is a rumor, and it's only a rumor, but. Uh, 
that Rosetta was approached, but he declined, as you know, Frank is kind of picky about what he uh, subjects he chooses. Probably still bitten about that whole token thing. He did a token thing. And... What? Nobody dug it. No. <laughs> well, let's just let's just say that some things, some artists are better left outside of the subjects of certain things, and that was not something that fit his particular oeuvre. Okay. Uh, you know, he did have a dark aspect to him that might not have been entirely appropriate uh, to the Tolkien verse. Well, if you wanted to see Eowyn's uh, bare buttocks, you know. Oh, well, okay. Ah, all right. Aragorn climbing over a mountain of bodies. Yeah, with clad into something more than a ragged shirt of mail. You know, I wouldn't have said no to that, but... You know. No, but, uh... Now... <clears throat> Next generation, we talk internet. And this is another explosion here, is that one of those, it, it was the event that altered everything. Hmm. Uh, gaming had entrenched itself in the consciousness of uh, fantasy readers everywhere, uh, computer gamers everywhere. Uh, the early Protean computer games were... You know, Full of radiance. Yeah, just a lot of them had a fantasy tinge. And <laughs> whether you were, you could even say Ultima, although that was more of a macro kind of thing. Yeah. But, but point sure. being, fantasy themes everywhere you turned. Uh, and the internet arrived, the ability for complete strangers on the opposite end of the country with a similar interest of any kind to put their creations out there. Uh, and again, fantasy art really took off. Uh, you started seeing uh, just how many people were trying to stretch their wings at it, uh, inspired by the exact stuff we had mentioned before, that those Dragon Magazine covers made their mark. Uh, all those different artists had, had a little ripple effect. Lots of people wanted to create that type of art now. Yeah, and, well, a little bit before internet, I also wanted to make a little brief touch that TSR's art team would go into full overdrive when they produced the Dragonlance. Now, I know a lot of people cringe when they hear Dragonlance, it's railroady, it's all these other things, but the artwork that they put together, each one of the art artists took a particular uh, style with it, and they all just like making a movie or a uh, poster, they put together themes that each one of the module covers would have. And I think Larry Elmore was hands down the best winner, capturing uh, various uh, aspects of what the uh, heroes of the Lance were going through and on the novels as well as uh, various other illustrations. It's a good point. There was a lot of subtlety because they were trying to capture in a single still piece of art uh, the subtle relationships that were going on there, the, the tensions, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Raceland and Caramon, you know, brothers they may have been, but very different attitudes and very different life directions. I, I was not the biggest fan of the novels because I, I did think that they were a little on the heavy-handed side, but just, you know, very straight to the point and simple. But they were like popcorn at a movie. You know, yeah. it's just, it's filler, it's good, it's fun. I did, I did Does not, anybody it, go to a movie and go like, oh, God, the last thing I want during a movie is popcorn? Well, yeah, if you go see Cyborg Cop. Okay, fair enough. Or Jean-Claude Van Damme in Cyborg. Oh, that's what that? I, yeah, Cyborg, that's what yeah, I Yeah, the original Cyborg. Uh, yeah, at that, Ugh. I have remembered how good the popcorn 
was uh, for 25 years. And I've also never forgotten how horrible the movie was. The popcorn <laughs> was the best thing about that day. Don't get pond on. <laughs> so, oh, damn it. Yeah, but, you know, as you were saying, you know, art would continue uh, the explosion of fantasy novels because there was a now a, a interest. And I don't think it's completely unrelated, but we're not going to cover about the literature side, just the artwork. And a lot of guys started getting involved with this. And using that approach, when they relaunched for second edition, they tapped a new artist who was just kind of a... He had been around for a while, but he was a young cat. His name was Brom. And they tapped him for Dark Sun. And boy, did this guy paint like Frazetta. Yeah. Uh, Almost all of his first 12 covers for the modules and supplements were all odes to Frazetta. And it was on purpose that he did that. Oh, it was, it was a very clear homage. And Brom had his own very particular art style. That, uh, there, there were elements to it that were uniquely his own. Uh, a more fantastic gothic tinge, but uh, that connection to classic Frazetta, the Vallejo, and mm-hmm. others—you yes. know—you you could see the relationship easily just at a glance and go, "Oh man!" So if you had already been exposed to the earlier art, uh, one look at Brahm and you're like, "Oh yeah, this guy rocks." Yeah, but Brahm basically put his thumbprint on Dark Sun. It was never quite the same without him. No, no. And they took a lesson from that, and they would take uh, Tony Der... Yeah, I'm going to... Oh, miss. D- Der Tizeri? Yeah, does... does yeah. <laughs> yes, the man who did Planescape, Tony D. Terlizzi. Ah, Terlizzi. There it oh, is, there D. Terlizzi. Um, he did Planescape, and again, a, one guy formed the entire look for the line. And this is important that how artwork can influence not only the feel and the tone of the writing, but it kind of takes its own path. It grows outside of the boundaries which it was contained in. And he just did numerous illustrations all for TSR in the 90s when the internet thing was really starting to take off. And now you had things like, uh, was it Deviant Art and other uh, oh early art gosh. places? Yeah, that, the early uh, web denizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, strongholds for for just random art uh, which honestly uh, you know it, it's the byproduct of people saying uh, man I want to do something like that but I don't feel confident enough to go out there and you know, like try to make money off of it right out of the gate uh, so people would just throw it up there and say well what do, what do you folks think uh, which I, I think takes a certain guts because in any creative endeavor you're <laughs> opening your kimono, so oh. to speak. Yes, the kimono is back. Ah, ah virtualize. Uh, but you know, you got to you got to open yourself up to that potential criticism, or you're not going to get any better. You're not going to move forward. You're not going to build the thick skin you need to go out there and try. So uh, that was an important facet, and worth mentioning, especially what Randy mentioned here about uh, the expanding number of books and book covers that were. Uh, related to gaming topics uh, and fiction and literature. We don't really want to cover the fiction and literature right now, but who doesn't remember when they're young, you go to a bookstore, back when that was a thing. Mm. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you go to a bookstore, and a lot of the time, 
if you weren't just going there based on a recommendation from somebody else and headed right for what you knew you wanted, you were glancing down that aisle, looking cover by cover, you know, looking at the names of books and looking at the art. And the thing that usually grabbed you right out of the gate was the art. A really impressive piece of cover art literally made the difference between a book and getting the opportunity it needed and it just crashing and burning and being forgotten a week later. Huh. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of the artists cut their teeth on the book cover market. You know, uh, it was pioneered by, um, in the old days, but by Ace and Doubleday, you know, hiring people like Rosetta and Vallejo, taking chances on these guys. And, uh, you know, sometimes they just, you know, the, the Edgar Rice Burroughs, that uh, oh, Rosetta yeah. did had very little to do with the content, but man, did it get people to buy them! And again, Burroughs stands on his own, not William S. Uh, he does stand on his own. No, no need not saying that. <laughs> or wobbles or falls over. Yeah, yeah, that's no, no that's William S. Okay, yeah, but Edgar Rice Burroughs, ERB, yeah, as he's abbreviated, you know it. His work stands on its own, and you know you read it, and you're like, "Well, the cover just kind of had this fiery pterodactyl attacking this shadowy guy with a knife." <laughs> this never happened in the book, but you know there were pterodactyls, and there was a you know. <laughs> this in no way reflects the events that I just read. Uh, but there is, you know, a, a, but was it cool? Yeah, you know, sailing in the middle of the journey to the center of the earth and all that stuff. But we killed her. I think it was called. Oh, Pellucidar. Pellucidar, thank you. I don't like to overpronounce the C's. Oh, that's all right. Um, but all right, you know, uh, so back on the, getting off the weeds, back onto the main char uh, course, charted course here we have, <coughs> such as it is. Um, <laughs> talking about the art of the 90s and uh, the 2000s, when they transitioned to third edition, they got a new team of uh, uh, hip artists on there, and uh, Mark Lockwood was one of them. And uh, they began also getting Wayne Reynolds whom I give a lot of nods to as an illustrator at first. A lot of black and white, and then slowly transitioned to uh, full color. But those guys helped set a lot of the tone for third edition. And uh, they also got, a, you know, they brought Brom back and a few others, artists who had been out there, who had uh, different styles and approaches. And as their uh, illustrations and things influenced like that, they passed on into their own. And, of course, uh, Wayne Reynolds would go on to be with Pathfinder, but still continue to do a lot of work for uh, Wizards of the Coast, the fourth edition. Oh, sure. And, uh, you know, now they're in the fifth edition. They've got a whole new style. But, man, such lavish illustrations in the uh, Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide for those. I mean, it's just... It is a feast for the eyes as well as for... Just, you know, your rules and all the little tit fiddly bits that you have to look up. It's always nice to look at fine artwork. It really is, and art not just being an inspiration on the decision whether to buy a book or not. Uh, it, it does that, but it also... Enough time exposed to enough art, and it begins to have a little impact on the way in which you describe things, uh, the, the things that you write and create, yeah. the, the mental pictures that you form when trying to put together an idea of what you're about to describe. Those mental pictures that you're drawing from come out of that pool of the 
you know, subconscious, all the things that you've ever seen and liked. Uh, that's the stuff you draw from, be it movies, books, literature, uh, you know, film, what have you. Uh, but art, too, has a subtle impact the longer you've been around. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those things that we've just mentioned in this, this podcast are things that, you know, when I close my eyes and I try to think, what is it that I want to describe to people? How do I, how do I see this location, this setting, uh, this scenario? That mental formation of images, that, that's heavily colored by the art I've taken in over the years. Now, let's, uh, on that note, let's take you back to the first edition of Forgotten Realms. Oh. The, by Keith Parkinson. That yeah. whole, you know, the borderscape that they did of the um, stone and glinting patina of brass or gold yeah. work, as well as the writer in the center of those standing stones in the Forgotten Realms. I mean, that that right there is what art can conjure for. Like, what... What is this guy? Where is this place? You know, you obviously get right off the bat. He's, you know, this writer on the uh, his normal destrier is not uh, an armored knight per se. No, but uh, you get this, uh, you get a one-page story with no words. Right. And everything is just in everything that you need to know is encapsulated in that picture. Uh, and I was sold pretty instantly on the Forgotten Realms. Uh, yeah, was, you, it wasn't a hard sell for you, but it, the artwork and the mystique generated by that initial uh, cover in the box set still resonates, and I've used that word way too much now, so I'll stop. But it evoked a aura of mystery and antiquity of an age undreamt of. Yeah, Conan style. Yeah, yeah. so... But uh, not exactly Hyboria, but uh, definitely... A, a world with a history behind it, with things going on in it that you weren't there for. Uh, which is another thing, that it's always amazing when an artist truly captures that. The sense uh, of a place being lived in. You know, a, a little whiff of what feels almost real. Mm -hmm. In spite of the unreal subject matter, okay? It, the subject matter is obviously fantasy-based and highly unrealistic. But if you can capture that sense of realism, that feeling like you're almost there. You're looking in a window at a place uh, that has a life without you. That's a very unique talent. And thank goodness there are still artists who can produce work like that. Uh, you know, the, the, in, the age of the internet has not destroyed that. It, if anything, it's, it's grown it. You know, it's, it, you're very right. It's not as profitable, perhaps, as it might once have been, because you're now competing with 100,000 people instead of a couple of hundred. True, but, but you know what? No, new people can step in the limelight, and all the artists from those old days of TSRs that are still with us are still generating material, and they're remembered for it. So, you know, next time you pass a uh, gaming book, you know, and you look at the cover and it does something for you, think about that artist, you know, and that it does not uh, exist in a vacuum. It was brung forth, and somebody illustrated it, so... Oh, yeah, and I, I really should, like on a positive note, uh, this is an era where people are very quick to let the entire world know what it is that they don't like. Uh, as a personal habit, I usually try to take a little time out, at least, you know, every month, uh, or whenever the occasion presents itself. If I see something I like, take a minute out and I tell people uh, that I liked that thing and why I liked it. I, I, 
I do that because I, I actually think that that's a much healthier perspective to have about the world around you than uh, you're like, oh, the only things I ever focus on are the things I hate. I already spent some time being like that about the world, so I, I'm not oh, interested true. in yeah. doing well. We could all take a lesson from that, yep. But all right, that's going to bring us to the end of our podcast tonight. Yeah. Thank you for sticking with us, and uh, shout out to Pat Galligan. Uh, I know you're listening out there. Speaking of art. Yeah. And also it's Perfect Storm Comics and Games. Uh, we'll talk more about miniatures uh, in the future, but uh, you know some things that people liked about that uh, brung us to this topic, so we'll keep covering uh, the small, obscure items now and then. Like, for instance, why do you use 25 millimeters for miniatures? Well, you know, we covered that, so go look that podcast, or uh, live cast up. Oh, yeah, that's that's in our, our maiden voyage live casting. Uh, the faces made for radio reveal themselves once and for all. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, we'll do more. It's, uh, it's out there now. There's no hiding it. The kimono, once opened, cannot be closed. What has been seen cannot be unseen. And uh, on that note, we're going to... Bid you a good night, and have a great weekend. Stay warm and safe if you're in a cold climate, and if you're warm, I'll boo on you. Uh, Enjoy it. Feast upon our bitter envy. All right. So, with that, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.